Amen. Praise God. Well, I thought it would be fitting today, since it is uh, Thanksgiving weekend, to talk about Thanksgiving. Not Thanksgiving as a holiday, necessarily, but Thanksgiving as a way of life. So I'd look, like for you to uh, turn to our master text in the Old Testament today in 2 Samuel 12, and we're going to read verses 13 through 22. Um, and while you're finding that, and again, that's in your Old Testament, uh, for those of you that are not as familiar with your Bibles yet, but as you're turning there, I want to say that at, at when I was growing up, that, that picture on the screen that you see there, you probably noticed that as a, a very familiar painting, maybe some of you. Uh, that painting, I believe the name of that painting is Daily Bread. And uh, I remember that, that painting hanging on the kitchen wall next to the kitchen table where uh, in the house that I grew up in. And as a matter of fact, I don't ever remember that painting not being there in the 18 or 19 years that I spent in that house. And while there's no words that accompany that painting, I think that that magnificent work of art there, the imagery really speaks volumes, doesn't it? Yeah, because there is that older gentleman uh, thanking God for the very humble and meager meal that he has before him. And of course, he has spiritual food there on the table as well with his Bible. So with that as kind of our backdrop, I'd like for us to go ahead and stand while we prepare to read our master text in 2 Samuel chapter 12, starting in verse 13. And uh, maybe I should give you a little bit of context before I begin here. This is uh, just in the aftermath of David sinning with Bathsheba and all the things that happened there. And the prophet Nathan comes to him and confronts him with this sin. And so I'm not going to read all that, but we're, we're, we're going to pick it up in verse 13 where it's, uh, we see David's response. In verse 13, Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, The Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. But because by doing this, you have made the enemies of the Lord show utter contempt, the son born to you will die. See, when he committed adultery with Bathsheba, she conceived a son. Then he had her husband murdered to cover up what they'd done. And um, that was a very grievous act. So the Lord judged him for that. Verse 15, after Nathan had gone home, the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife had borne to David, and he became ill. David pleaded with God for the child. He fasted and went into his house and spent the nights lying on the ground. The elders of his household stood beside him to get him up from the ground, but he refused, and he would not eat any food with them. On the seventh day, the child died. David's servants were afraid to tell him that the child was dead, for they thought, while the child was still alive, we spoke to David, but he would not listen to us. How can we tell him the child is dead? He may do something desperate. David noticed that his servants were whispering among themselves, and he realized the child was dead. Is the child dead? He asked. Yes, they replied, he is dead. Then David got up from the ground. After he had washed, put on lotions, and changed his clothes, he went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. Then he went to his own house, and at his, at his request, they served him food, and he ate. His servants asked him, why are you acting this way? While a child was alive, you fasted and wept, but now that the child is dead, you get up and eat. He answered, 
While the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. I thought, who knows? The Lord may be gracious to me and let the child live. But now that he is dead, why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I will go to him, but he will not return to me. And all God's people say, amen. Amen. Now, I want to focus in on that verse 22. Uh, So let me read that once again to you. Um, And actually, verse 20. Um, Then David got up from the ground after he had washed, put on lotions and changed his clothes. He went into the house of the Lord and he worshiped. He worshiped. Well, I'd like for you to notice that uh, how David responded when he knew that tragedy had struck and he didn't get what he asked for. How did he respond? He worshiped. He offered thanksgiving to the Lord. And that's precisely the opposite of how most people react when they don't get what they'd hoped for. But David had seen hard times before, folks. David had seen many hard times before. And he knew that God was just as good and faithful during those kinds of times as when times are good. I'm going to say that again. David knew because of all he'd been through before and how he saw God come through for him many times before. He knew that God was just as good and faithful during hard times as he is when times are good. Now, our key thought here this morning that I want to present to you as we get rolling here with this teaching is this, and I'm going to make you work a little bit this morning with your with your fill in the blanks. I've got a little bit more than I usually do, but I want to engage your mind this morning. So I'm going to make you work a little bit for this, if you don't mind. Um, but this is our, our key thought. There's something about thanksgiving in the midst of trials that overcomes the power of darkness. It changes the trajectory of one's life toward the fulfillment of God's purposes. So I really want you to to focus in on that key thought. So I'm, as you're writing there, I'm going to read that to you again. There's something about thanksgiving in the midst of trials that overcomes the power of darkness. It changes the trajectory of one's life toward the fulfillment of God's purposes. And that's why I have that imagery there that uh, you see there, that, that man worshiping in the midst of the storm. So I think that's a very appropriate imagery for that thought. Now, in David's case, you know, I don't know where the the trajectory of David's life would have gone if he would have given up on God when God didn't answer his prayer to heal the child. But I know this much. I know that he would not have fulfilled all that God eventually did in and through him. Because he responded the way that he did, I think that was very pleasing to God, and God was able to continue to use him. He didn't roll up into a, a fetal position and and give up on God and give up on life. He got up and he offered thanks to God. And I think that's a lesson for us. And he said this, David wrote this in Psalm 42, 5. Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God. He's talking to himself, talking to his own soul, his own emotions. Put your hope in God, he tells himself, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. You see, David knew that a heart of thanksgiving comes from knowing the character of God, not just from outward circumstances. David knew that a heart of thanksgiving, a true heart of thanksgiving, comes from knowing the character and faithfulness of God, not just from outward circumstances. 
And there was another man who knew that. In the year 1636, during the darkest days of the so-called 30-year war, there was a German pastor by the name of Martin Rinkart who was said to have buried 5,000 people in one year from his church, his town, and the outlying communities and countryside. 5,000 people in one year. That's an average of 15 per day. His church and region were ravaged by war, economic disaster, and a whole lot of death. And in the heart of that darkness, with even the, the cries of fear that he could hear outside of his own window, he sat down and he composed a worship poem to God and for his children. I think he was giving his children an object lesson as well. And here's what he wrote. Now thank we all our God with heart and hands and voices. Wondrous things hath done in whom his world rejoices. Who from our mother's arms hath led us on our way with countless gifts of love and still is ours today. This is the poem that he wrote during that time where he had a hand in burying 5,000 people in a single year from his church, his town, and his countryside. Well, this man too, Martin Rinkhart, knew that a heart of thanksgiving does not come just from outward circumstances, obviously, but from knowing the goodness and faithfulness of God, even in times where uh, our simple minds can't make sense of what's going on. I felt like you need to say that again as well. That Martin Rinkhart, David in the Bible, knew that a heart of thanksgiving comes not from just the outward circumstances, because your outward circumstances can change quite dramatically, can't they? But a heart of thanksgiving, a true heart of thanksgiving, comes from knowing the, the faithfulness and goodness of God, even in times that don't make sense to our simple minds. So I'm going to give you some principles this morning um, to help us to live a lifestyle of faithfulness. And the first principle, we first have to understand what the opposite of thanksgiving is so we can recognize the bitter fruits in our own lives. And the first one is this, complaining. Complaining is the opposite of thanksgiving. I want to read you out of Philippians 2, verses 14 and 15, which says, Do everything without grumbling or arguing or some versions you actually use the word complaining there, so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky. What's it saying? That refraining from grumbling and complaining uh, causes us, in certain respects anyway, to appear to be blameless and pure to those around us, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation, then you will shine among them, it says. It's very important that we don't use our mouths for constant complaining. See, grumbling and complaining is indeed the opposite of thankfulness because the focus is all on what's wrong rather than what's right. And I dare to to make a, uh, a comment here that I think that we, all of us in this room right now, could find more 
of what's right in our lives and what's wrong, but we tend to focus on what's wrong. That's the default position. That's the fallen human condition. And, I'm, and the older I get and the more of God's word that I read, I'm becoming more convinced that complaining is hellish. And the reason I say that is because it's based in pride and God hates pride because complaining says, well, I deserve better or I can do better or I am better. So complaining is, is based in pride. And it's that attitude right there that has ruined more marriages than you can shake a stick at. Why? Because husbands and wives become fixated on what's wrong with their spouse rather than appreciating and recognizing all that's right. And I've known people over the years that I'm thinking about one couple right now, uh, not in this church, but thinking about one couple right now that the wife of this couple, uh, she was married to a good, a good man, provided well for her. He had a real even keeled temper, um, just really laid back kind of guy. But there's just like one or two little things that really in the grand scheme of things weren't really that big of a deal, but they bothered her. They really bothered her. And she's so fixated upon those little couple of areas that it eventually disintegrated their relationship and they ended up divorced because she couldn't appreciate all that he brought to the table that was good and right. And, and by the way, married couples, and also some of you younger people need to know this too because you'll be getting into um, marriage one day maybe. And this is, a, this is a principle you need to understand. You can have two or three or four things that you really just aggravates you about your spouse and so much so that you end up fixating on that and, and you're like, oh, well, I didn't sign up for this. I'm going to bail out on this and find somebody else that's better. And then you find somebody else and then that next person doesn't have those two or three problems. But they got a, a set of whole new problems now that you got to deal with. All right. <clears throat> so really, it's a best that you just learn to deal with the issues that are in your marriage now and be thankful, you know, fixate on all that's good and right about your spouse. And if you do that, you'll really seriously, um, you'll learn to love and appreciate them much more than if you're fixating on the things that are not right. Because guess what? You have some issues too that aggravate your spouse. Okay, so we just need to be patient with one another. And the same thing I just told you about your marriages exists here in the church as well. I find it so fascinating that God puts so many people of so much, such different temperaments and different backgrounds. God throws us in the mix together and expects us to get along. And we rub each other the wrong way so often. And I think that's by God's design because we chip the rough, rough edges off of each other and learn to appreciate all that's good and right about the person sitting next to you or in front of you or behind you rather than fixating on what bothers you about that person. Because the things that bother you about the person in front of you, behind you, next to you, guess what? You've got about half a dozen different things that bother them too. <clears throat> that's true. Hello. And that's, you know, that's, hey, listen. And that's true of, of, of your pastor too. You know, if you fixate on the stuff that you don't like about me, because, you know, I've got more, more flaws than you even know about, some of you. Um, and if you fixate on that, you won't be able to receive from me very long. But if you, if you realize that every pastor, every parishioner, every elder, 
every Christian has all kinds of different flaws. You, you learn to just look past those and appreciate the things that are good about that person. You'll be able to walk in unity with those individuals. Amen? Amen. Praise God. Okay, let me give you another principle here. The next one is this, worry. The opposite of thanksgiving. That's recognizing the bitter fruits, and that's worry. Okay? If you read chapter 6 of Matthew, um, it tells us to to not worry because God's going to take care of all of your needs if you make his kingdom and his righteousness your primary concern. So the thankful person uh, focuses on that, focuses on, on, on what God has already done for them and then what he will also do in the future. See, a thankful person looks back on the track record of God's thankfulness and that allows that person to have faith for what God will do in the future. Amen? So thus, a thankful person must walk in faith, right? And vice versa, a person walking in faith will be thankful and, here's the goal, to be worry-free because you cast all your cares and your anxieties upon the Lord. So worry is the opposite of thanksgiving because you're focusing on all that's wrong or all that could go wrong that hasn't even happened yet. That's what worry is. You're focusing on things that that maybe could go wrong but might not go wrong, but you're fixated on it, so you worry about it. You're in anxiety about it. And that's why the Lord says to cast our cares upon him because he cares for you. He doesn't want us to be full of anxiety. So that's the opposite of thanksgiving, worry. Okay, the next one is going to hit you between the eyes, all of us, and that's self-pity. Self-pity. Self-pity is the opposite of thanksgiving, and it's the opposite of faith, by the way. Uh, Opposite of faith. Now, there in that reference, Matthew 16, that you see there on the screen, if you go read that, that's a pretty interesting exchange between Jesus and Peter. Because Jesus is telling his disciples, well, we're going to go to Jerusalem, and there in Jerusalem, I'm going to be turned over to the authorities, and I'm going to be um, crucified and killed. Now, Peter was feeling, feeling his oats right about then, because just a few sentences before that, if you read the text in Matthew 16, Jesus asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And some people said, well, you're, you're Elijah incarnated. You know, they, they say all these different things. Some say a prophet, etc. But then Jesus said, who do you say that I am? And it was Peter that piped up and said, you are the, the Messiah. You're the son of God, the son of the living God. And so Jesus commended him. So I think when Jesus started this little dissertation about, hey, I'm going to go to Jerusalem, they're going to crucify me. I think Peter right then was feeling his oats a little bit, and he pulled him aside and said, no, master, this will never happen to you. Well, (laughs) right after Jesus commended him, Jesus then had to say, get thee behind me, Satan, because you do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. He, he essentially said that Satan was speaking through Peter at that moment. Why? Because Peter was tempting Jesus to feel sorry enough for himself to not go to, to Jerusalem and go through the, with the crucifixion. Now, look, Jesus was a son of God, but he was trapped for 33 years in a human body. He experienced pain. So he knew what he was about to go through when he was about to go to that terrible, horrible cross. And he was not looking forward to that. And so when Peter said, Lord, this will never happen to you, I'm telling you, 
Jesus gave a smack down to Peter like just about nobody else. Get thee behind me, Satan, because you do not have in thing, uh, the things of God in mind, but the things of men. Uh, Jesus jumped on self-pity with both feet. He would not have any part of self-pity. Why? Because self-pity can take you off the course of what God has in mind for you to accomplish. See, faith doesn't wallow in self-pity. Thankfulness doesn't wallow in self-pity because faith knows that God is faithful and whatever you're going through at the moment, this too shall pass. Amen. Now, how many of you know the name Zig Ziglar? Anybody? Okay, many of you. Some of you younger ones, maybe not so much. He's, he's in heaven now. But he was a motivational speaker and author, and uh, he was known as Mr. Positive. He wrote book titles like See You at the Top, and he was just a wonderful you know, man about helping you to realize your own potential, and just very, very, very positive. Well, many years ago, he had a daughter who died of leukemia, and he said at that point, after her death, he was tempted to just crawl into bed and roll up into the fetal position and withdraw from everyone and feel sorry for himself. And it was at that time that he really had to do a gut check and determine if everything that he had been teaching for all of those years, whether or not he really believed all that still. You know, he was teaching things like positivity and overcoming obstacles and a lifestyle of thanksgiving. He had to do a gut check to see if he still really believed all that. And after some contemplation for a while, he came to the conclusion that, yes, I do believe all this, and I'm going to get past this, and I'll be okay. In fact, I'll be more than okay. And you know what? He was. He continued a very fruitful life and career right up until the time of his death. Now, I don't listen to a lot of Joyce Meyer. I used to listen to her many years ago. She was actually a very important part of my early development, but I probably haven't listened to a whole sermon by Joyce Meyer for over 20 years, but I was on my, my little podcast app the other day, and I have a lot of different podcasts on there, and, and um, Pastor Robert Morris had her as a guest speaker at his church, and I looked at the title of the, of the message, and I'm like, you know, that's, I'm going to check that out, and so I listened to that, and I went, I forgot how good she is, and she's a real just practical, not really super deep theologically, but just real practical, um, just super practical Christianity. And uh, she uses herself as bad examples all the time. And, uh, you know, she talks a little bit about what she went through as a younger Christian and, uh, you know, some of the attitudes that God had to help her to get past. And I like one of the, one of the statements that she made. I heard her make this statement before, but it reminded me what a profound quote this is. I love this quote by Joyce Meyer. She said this, you can be pitiful or you can be powerful, but you can't be both. I'm going to say that again. You can be pitiful. If you want to wallow in it, that's up to you. That's your choice. You can be pitiful or you can be powerful, but you can't be both. If you want to be powerful, you can't stay there in that state of self-pity. You'll never grow. You'll never flex your spiritual muscles, or your endurance muscles if you decide to stay there and wallow in self-pity. You can be pitiful or you can be powerful, but you cannot be both. All right, so how do we turn these attitudes around then, these three, 
these three telltale signs of unthankfulness existing in your life. How do we turn that around? Well, the principle here is to not elevate the problem. Not elevate the problem. And I'm going to read to you a little section out of Numbers 14, where the children of Israel, the people of Israel, after they had um, escaped from Egypt, and they were wandering through the wilderness, and they were at the threshold of the promised land. And then they realized after sending a scouting team into the land of Canaan, that there were giants in the land that they were going to have to, they were going to, have to fight. And then the people wailed all night long. This is the backdrop for you. The people wailed all night long and said, we can't go in there. They'll devour us. We're like grasshoppers in their sight. Blah, 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 blah. So let's pick it up right there. Uh, verse 1. In Numbers 14, then the whole congregation lifted up their voices and cried out. And that night, the people wept. Now, God had promised them, you go in, you go take the land, and I'm going to help you, and you're going you're to occupy the land. But when they saw those giants, it's like, no, no way. So they, the whole congregation lifted up their voices and cried out. And that night, the people wept. Verse 2, all the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and the whole congregation said to them, if only we had died in the land of Egypt, or if only we had died in this wilderness, why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and children will become plunder. You do not want to prophesy that kind of thing over yourself. Our wives and children will become plunder. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? Verse 11, And the Lord said to Moses, How long will this people treat me with contempt? That attitude of, of not believing and trusting God to follow through with his promise, God considered that contempt against him. That prophecy that our children will become plunder in the wilderness. That made God mad. How long will this people treat me with contempt? How long will they refuse to believe in me despite all the signs I have performed for them? See, if you elevate the problem, ladies and gentlemen, you will short circuit the blessing process in your life. You elevate the problem, you're going to short-circuit the blessing process in your life. See, the people of Israel did not enter the promised land, that, that older generation anyway, did not enter the promised land because they elevated the problem, the present circumstances, over the promises and power of God. They were not thankful for what God had brought them out of, that Egyptian slavery that they had cried out for, for God to save them from. And then when God did, and they had to get to the threshold of the promised land, and then they were going to have to exert some effort to fight, they forgot all about all that trouble in Israel. They were not thankful. They did not remember the goodness of God. Now, Moses, of course, was cut from a different piece of cloth, wasn't he? Moses focused on the power of the Lord, not the size of the problem. So in verse 13, it says of Moses, But Moses said to the Lord, So now I pray, may the power of my Lord be magnified. Not the problem. May the power of my Lord be magnified. Now, I need you to help me out a little bit on this next slide. I got a little blank there, and I want you to help me 
if you see, if you think you know what the, and I think this is a pretty easy one actually, and there's actually several words that would fit nicely into, into, into that sentence. So we give more power to what we believe, on. B- believe focus on, what else? Want. Want. What else? Fear. Fear. That's, say, all those are true. Actually, all those are exactly right answers. My word is this. I'm going to say it a little bit of a different way. But all of everything that I heard is all absolutely correct. But I'm going to encompass it down into one word. We give more power to what we magnify. We give more power to what we magnify. So in Romans 4, verses 18 through 21, it says of Abraham, when God promised him a son at at an old age, at a very old age, him and his wife were both past the age of childbearing. But when God gave Abram that promise, it said that Abraham, in that passage, did not consider the condition of his body. That's present reality but gave glory to God and magnified the promise. See, he gave more power to what he magnified, right? And the promise eventually came true in his life. So he, he thanked God. He lived a life of thanksgiving toward God for what that promise meant to him. And that's what he magnified. In Luke chapter 17, verses 11 through 19, uh, there was a leper, um, and actually there were several lepers that uh, approached Jesus for healing, and Jesus healed them all and sent them on their way. And then one returned back to him. And Jesus essentially said, is there only one of the, I think it was, what was it, 10 lepers? Was it, is there only one that has returned to give glory to God? Now, I want you to notice something. When Jesus addressed this man, he said that his thanksgiving had made him whole. He, he said, your faith, your thanksgiving has made you whole. That act of thanksgiving, his faith had made him whole. That word is sozo, and I think that's very significant because sozo means wholeness in every area, spirit, soul, and body. Now, I'm reading between the lines here. I'm speculating. What I'm about to say is speculation, so take it just as that. So the Bible doesn't say this. But I'm kind of reading between the lines here because of that word sozo. I think, again, my, my speculation, I think that when that leper came back, you know, lep- leprosy is a terrible disease. It eats off fingers. It eats off ears, the ends of noses. I mean, it's just, it eats the flesh. So there are lepers that their condition has been prolonged for any length of time. They'll have nubs instead of fingers. You know, ears are gone, the ends of noses are gone, etc. Toes are gone. I think that Jesus healed the leprosy, but none of them were yet whole in terms of their extremities growing back. Could it be that when the leper returned back to give thanks and Jesus pronounced, you have been made sozo, whole, that maybe the nubs became pop, 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 pop. Maybe the nose became full fingers again. Maybe the end of the nose grew back. Maybe the ears grew back. Jesus did that sort of thing. Okay? The Bible says that if all the miracles that Jesus performed were recorded, I suppose the whole world will not be able to hold all the books that would be written. So there's a bunch of miracles that not even recorded in the Bible. I don't know if you realize that. Okay? So again, that's my speculation. I think that's what happened. Okay? Because of that word sozo. 
Okay? So I want you to realize that thanksgiving is an act of faith, like that leper did. Thanksgiving is an act of faith that gives God more access to your life. Yeah, yeah, go ahead and clap on that. That's a, that's, that's a good place to give a praise break right there. Hallelujah. So thanksgiving is an act of faith that gives God more access to your life because Psalm 22.3 says that God inhabits the praises of his people. What's that mean? That means God comes on the scene during thanksgiving and praise. Hallelujah. And that's what happened with that leper. I believe. But let me give you another couple of, of examples that the Bible clearly gives us very clear insight on where Thanksgiving set the stage for the supernatural. Now, before I give you these two examples, and of course you're looking at that image on the screen there of Paul and Silas in prison as they're singing praises to God. I'll give you a little bit more detail on that in a moment. But I, I want to I preface that with this statement right here. Um, how do you tend to react when people show you great gratitude for something that you've done for them? How do you tend to react toward that individual? Well, if you're anything like me, it makes you want to do even more for them. Yeah. A couple of weeks ago, maybe it was more than that, I was, I was on my series. Uh, I was talking about finances. And I talked about how Donna and I, when we were on our way down to uh, our vacation on the beach, we stopped in Alabama and uh, we were gassing up, and I saw this uh, young man who was, uh, looked like he had a little bit of cerebral palsy, and some one arm was drawn up, but he was working very hard. He worked there at the gas station. He was working very hard, and, and the Lord just told me, I, I want you to bless him today, and so um, I, I went up to him and introduced myself, and we got to chatting a little bit, and I just said, you know what? I just believe the Lord wants me to bless you today, and and I just had $40 in my wallet. That's all I had in there. So I, I pulled out $40 and gave it to him. And he just began to weep. Just began to weep. And uh, I, I think I told you that story in its entirety a couple, year, a couple of weeks ago. And he just, you could tell, this was not, this meant, $40 just meant the world to him. But maybe it wasn't just the $40. Maybe it was the fact that someone cared enough to do something for him. And he just fell, fell on my shoulder and just wept. And I could feel his tears on my face. He just wept. So it wasn't a put on. He was very, very thankful. And then, of course, Donna came over. And, of course, what, what did that gratitude do for me? When Donna came over, it was like, do you have any more money? And you're... So, I, yeah, I had Donna pull out a bunch more, and we gave him a big wad of cash. So if, if I would have given him that $40, and he would have went, oh, thanks, and put it in his pocket, I would have went... Okay, well, praise the Lord. You know, I'll get a blessing off that, even if he doesn't. But when he showed me that degree of gratitude, I'm like, what else can I do for you? And I believe that's the way God is. That's certainly the way you, you parents are, isn't it? Yes. When, you're, when you do something for your child, and they just kind of like, you know, thanks. You're like, see if I ever do anything for you again. <laughs> Not really, but that's kind of the attitude that you have. But when your child is, is like, extravagantly gracious to you. You know, one of the things that I've really have, has entertained me about Drew over the years, every birthday and Christmas, Drew's response to gifts is just like super over the top. It's like just this extravagant outward display of thankfulness. And it's, it's, it's kind of funny to watch, but it's like, man, I like giving to that kid. And, and I, I think that's the way... 
you know, a, a lot of you parents are as well. That's the way God is. See, God, when, you, when you're thankful like that, I believe that that predisposes you to more of the blessings of God. What about the opposite? I think the opposite is also true. When you don't show a lot of thanksgiving, uh, both you parents and I think God to a degree is the same way. When we don't show him thanksgiving, that does not allow his presence to come on the scene like it did with Paul and Silas. So that's the, uh, the story in Acts 16 verses 25 and 26. They were preaching the gospel and they got beaten for it and thrown in prison with their feet in stocks, with their backs laid open from the beating they took. And they were there in that dark prison. <clears throat> I like that, that painting there. I don't know if you can see that, but there's rats in there, feet in stocks. And they begin to sing worship songs to God, the Bible says. They begin to sing hymns to God and all the other prisoners could hear it. And then something supernatural happened. The supernatural presence of God descended on that scene and a violent earthquake hit the prison and all the shackles broke off everyone. The, uh, the, the walls and the floors split apart and the, the place couldn't hold the prisoners anymore. And yet they were all there and none of them escaped. And the prison guard went to take his sword and, and kill himself because he knew the punishment for prisoners escaping, he's probably going to be hung on a cross too. And he didn't want that kind of death. So he was going to take his life right then and there. But they said, hey, stop, stop, stop. We're all here. And then that man came to the Lord that day. So thanksgiving and praise brings the, the supernatural presence of God on the scene. So you see, Paul and Silas, even in that dark, stinking dungeon, what they did attracted the presence of God, even in that place. Let me give you another example of this. And that's in 2 Chronicles chapter 20, where Judah was invaded by an alliance of three different armies that came against them, and they were hopelessly outnumbered. And uh, after fasting and praying as to what to do, a prophet stood up and said, you'll not have to fight this battle. This is the Lord's battle. Go down to meet them tomorrow and I'll be with you. And so what they did was they had faith in that promise. So they put the singers and the musicians and the dancers and the flag wavers on the front line in front of the army and went down to meet the enemy. And as they got down there to the valley where they were about to meet the enemy with singing and praising to God, uh, God caused the enemy armies, those alliance of three armies, to get confused and start attacking one another. And by the time that, that the army of Judah got down there, there was no fight to be fought because they'd all annihilated one another. Not a single man survived, the Bible says, and it took them three days to carry away the plunder. So once again, Thanksgiving sets the stage, ladies and gentlemen, for the supernatural. That's why it's so important that praise and worship be a part of your life right? Not only in your private life, but certainly here and in, in corporately as well. And not just corporately, but privately too, both. Amen? Amen? Now, folks, I want to tell you this morning what God's will for you is. A lot of people ask the question, well, what's God's will for me? I'm, I'm about to give you part of what God's will for you personally is, and that's joy and thankfulness. You know, joy and thankfulness is God's will for you. I'm going to read to you 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 16 through 18, which says, Rejoice only when times are good. It's not what it says. Rejoice at all times. 
Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in every circumstance, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. If you have a question about what God's will for you is, there's part of it right there. Rejoice at all times. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in every circumstance, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Why are we to give thanks in every circumstance, even if the circumstance is stinky, is rotten, is painful? Because when you do so, it brings God on the scene, and that circumstance can change. Your circumstances are changeable, ladies and gentlemen. They are changeable. Your good circumstances today can get difficult tomorrow, but your difficult circumstances today can get really good tomorrow. So you praise God in all circumstances, knowing that God is bigger than what you're going through right now. Give thanks in all circumstances. So notice that joy and thankfulness, therefore, is not dependent upon outward circumstances. Joy and thankfulness is not dependent upon outward circumstances. Just like I told you at the start of the teaching, that David knew that joy and thankfulness is not dependent upon outward circumstances alone, but upon knowing the goodness and faithfulness of God. And the German pastor that I mentioned, Martin Rinkhart, knew that joy and thankfulness was not dependent just upon outward circumstances, but knowing the goodness and faithfulness of God even during times when you don't understand what's happening. Praise the Lord. Now, no matter the struggle then, we need to always magnify and talk about the answer. The answer, not the problem, the answer. See, don't commiserate on the problem. You know, you've heard that saying, misery loves company. That really is true, isn't it? Misery loves company. You want, when you're feeling miserable, you want to get together with other people who feel miserable so you can commiserate together. Or a lot of other people, when they feel miserable, they want to tear other people down and make them feel miserable because somehow, some way, they think that's going to make them feel better about the current situation they're in. And that never works, of course. That never works. You, ne- you can never feel better by tearing someone else down. Okay. You can never feel better by tearing someone else down. That just perpetuates that negative cycle of sowing and reaping. So don't commiserate on the current problems, but talk about the God of breakthrough. Celebrate the God of breakthrough. Now, look, no, look, folks, listen. I realize that that's easier said than done. I, I, I get that. I've been through the same process you have. It's way easier said than done to do what I just said, to not commiserate when times are bad, rather than talk about the God of breakthrough. And I want to tell you something. There's someone in our congregation, Julie Suvercroup, that's so good at that, that's so good at just talking about the goodness of God, even when times are difficult. I'm just, I'm just going to be real honest because she knows this. She makes some people irritated. <laughs> because, and, it, and <laughs> because people want you to commiserate with them. They don't want to hear God is able. Amen. This too will pass. God is able. Trust God. They don't want to hear that. They, they want to hear you commiserate with, oh, poor baby, poor baby. It's going to be okay, poor baby. You know, 
Donna and I, early in our marriage, we used to play this little game with one another called Poor Baby. And, and when, seriously, when, when we were upset about something, the other, the other spouse would say, oh, poor baby. But we, we got to the place, you know, that was kind of a funny little thing for us. We got to the place where we don't do that anymore. We, I mean, we speak faith to one another now. We don't play poor baby anymore. We speak faith to one another. Okay? So, everybody say to Julie, we love you, Julie. We love the faith that you speak, Julie. Amen. <laughs> Amen. Yeah, easier said than done, but Julie's done a great job of training herself in that way because Julie faces problems and trouble. I, I know Julie and Mark very well. And so I know they go through stuff sometimes that's really challenging. But you never hear them commiserating and complaining and just talking about magnifying the problem. You, know, you never hear that. So it's not fake. It's not fake. It's faith. Yes. You say that again. It's not fake. It's faith. Amen. Hallelujah. Yes. So then, Nahum 1 verse 7 says this. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of distress. Hallelujah. He cares for those who trust in him. Hallelujah. That's the kind of thing that we need to be talking. And then likewise, Isaiah 43, verses 1 and 2. I quoted this earlier during our worship time. Do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by your name. You are mine. I love that little line right there where God says, you're mine. You're mine. Yeah? Hallelujah. Christina, you are mine. God says. He has you in the palm of his hand. You belong to him. You are his. Hallelujah. Juanita, you are his. You belong to him. You are mine, he says. Don't fear, for I have redeemed you. He has called you out by name. Matt, you belong to him. Don't fear, because you are his. Look at this. He has redeemed you. He's called you out, called Matt Cooley out by name, and you belong to him. Isn't that an encouragement, that you belong to him? He says, you are mine. Verse 2, when, didn't say if, sorry, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you go through the rivers, they will not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be scorched. The flames will not set you ablaze. Hallelujah. Praise God. And besides all this, let me just encourage you with this. You can always think of someone else who has it a lot worse than you. Can't you? Now, let me just give you a graphic example right now. This is an extreme example, but it's an example that is a reality in the world right now. Can you imagine the agony of some of the elderly people in Israel right now when they learn that their children and their grandchildren are all dead, killed in one day by Hamas? Because that's what's happened. Because Hamas has gone into, into homes and wiped out entire families. Can, can you imagine the agony of the elderly when they hear that my children and my grandchildren are dead? 
Can you imagine that? Now, in our, in our prayer time today, we just prayed for the Shoemaker family here in our community who lost a teenage son recently. And I don't know that many of you in the room know what it's like to lose a close loved one. But I don't know anybody who's lost multiple close family members in a single day, like some of the people in Israel have had to endure. My point in bringing that up is that you can always think of someone less fortunate, right? Right? No matter what you're going through right now, at least you're not going through that. And I, I, I think that when we remember that and we think of those people less fortunate and we pray for those people less fortunate, I think this is also a good reminder for us about what's really important in life. You know, our lives here in America are so fast-paced, we get so caught up in things that don't really matter in the grand scheme of things. From an eternal perspective, we allow ourselves, yes, we allow ourselves to get caught up in things that don't really matter in the grand scheme of things. Our hobbies, our sports, our recreation, our social media have really no eternal value. Meanwhile, the things that are the most important, the things that are right in front of us, tend to take a back seat. You know, our families, our relationships with them, our relationship with God, and the things that are most important to Him, those are the things that tend to take a back seat sometimes. And I want to encourage you today, folks, that those are the things that have eternal value. One of these days... All those things that we place such importance on, that we think are so important for life, our hobbies, our, our Facebook pages, you know, our sports, our, our little recreational activities, they're all going to be gone one day. They're all going to be gone one day. We need to be investing our lives into things that have eternal value. So back to the whole thankfulness theme of this teaching, remember to thank God for your health is the first thing. I mean, my goodness, there's a lot of people worse off than, than most of you in this room where their health is concerned. Man I, man, I drive down the road sometimes and, you know, my hand, my hand's up on the steering wheel and I just get to looking at my hand and going, that is an amazing creation of God. And what, what if I just was missing one of those fingers? It would make a huge impact on my life, just missing one of those fingers. You know, my mentor, Dr. Jerry King, he went and toured the, the plant uh, the factory of one of his uh, uh, church members. And he was touring that plant and set his hand down on, on a machine, not realizing it was still running, and it came down and lopped off these two fingers right here. His uh, index finger and his middle finger lopped them right off. And he is about 85 years old now. That happened maybe 40 years ago. He said to me one day, he said, there's not a day that goes by that I'm not acutely aware that those two fingers are missing after 40 years. So remember to thank God for your health, your family, the food in your refrigerator and your cupboards, your clothing, your house, and your other provisions. And of course, the best thing of all, salvation itself. There is so much to be thankful for. You've just got to focus on it. And stop giving what's wrong in your life the power over you. 
Again, easier said than done. That's why you got to practice like Julie does. Practice and just talk the answer, not the problem. Hallelujah. Now, listen, look, I'm a practical guy. I realize when you go through stuff, it can be painful and you might have times where you cry, where you get despondent, where you just, you, you're, you get confused. I realize, look, we're people, we're humans, we have emotions, we go through those things. But at the end of the day, you've got to do like Zig Ziglar does and say, am I going to let this destroy me? Or am I going to get myself up and push on again and just, you declare over yourself, I'm going to get past this. And I'm going to be okay. In fact, I'm going to be better than okay. Because all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purposes. Hallelujah. There's so much to be thankful for if we just look for it and focus on it. You might want to go home, actually. I'm going to give you a prescription for anxiety and depression right now. And I'm going to give you a passage as we end here. But you might want to go home and make yourself a list of all the things that's right in your life. And I'll bet you get, you get halfway through that list and you'll go, man, I'm feeling a lot better about my life. Praise God. But here's your biblical prescription for anxiety and depression. This is our last scripture, and then we're going to close. You're familiar with it, Philippians 4, verses 4 through 8. Let's read it again together. Rejoice in the Lord. How often? Always. Always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be apparent to all. The Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing. But in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, there it is, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. That's a great promise right there, verse 7. Let's read it again. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, when you do this, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Verse 8. Finally, brothers, here's our instruction and what to think about. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think on these things. Think on these things. Would you stand with me and we're going to pray together. You've been listening to the teaching ministry of Pastor Andy Robbins and Blessed Life Fellowship. For more teaching and ministry resources, go to the church website at www.blessedlifefellowship.org. Thanks for listening, and may God's grace and favor shine on you.